Hello, and you're very welcome to The Week That Really Was. I think this is episode 16, 17, it's in the teens anyway, and I'm afraid it's very much a case of bad news and good news this week on the show, as we have, I regret to say, a big change to announce. Fans of football uh, will know that the January transfer window recently closed, and I'm afraid there was one last big piece of business to be done, as the big money club at the Sunday Independent came in at the last minute and swooped to sign David Quinn out from under us. So David's new new contractual arrangements, I'm not breaking any secrets there, means that he is exclusively an employee of independent news and media, which means that unfortunately he can't co-host this show anymore. Um, but, you know, we're not in the business standing in the way of young talent here on the week that really was. And so we wish David all the best with his new role. And who knows, from time to time, we might even entice him back as a guest, contracts permitting. The good news is, that we found a replacement, and I'm sure in time you'll come to appreciate her as much as I already do. She's a barrister at law. Before that, she was a Dublin city councillor for Fianna Fáil. She is the mother to three fantastic young children and wife, some would say, to a fourth, slightly older child. She's also, I'm very proud to say, a very close and dear friend. Sarah Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope it's uh, going to be a, a regular, a regular, um, and maybe you'll make more episodes than than David did. On the, this week's show, what I wanted to talk about uh, is focusing on the fact that you are a former Dublin City Councillor. I'm also not spilling any secrets by saying that you are a scion, uh, although I think a, a slightly alienated scion of the Fianna Fáil party. Uh, maybe alienated mm-hmm. is not the right word, you can correct me. But one of the things that fascinates me about Irish politics at the moment is the culture of silence. A, a, a couple of months ago, we had Sharon Cohen on this show. Um, or Kyogen, to pronounce her name properly, who's in the Senate. And one of the things she talked about was this culture of silence and compliance in Leinster House. I look around the country and I see all sorts of mad stuff. I see Norma Foley uh, announcing this week that she intends to get rid of parental consent for people to change their gender at the age of 16. I see um, effectively a consensus in the Oireachtas that we have to legalise all drugs or decriminalise all drugs. I see the ongoing farce with immigration. And you and I are both in a position where we talk to people who are very heavily involved in politics all the time. And they will tell you to their face that they disagree with all of this stuff. But why are they voting for it? What's your thoughts? I think the irony of it is, is that there's a, a, a conservatism, um, which sounds like a strange word to use, but a conservatism in the culture of politics in Ireland. And you know, the nature of it is, especially if you're involved in party politics, that if you're a TD, for the most part, unless you've come in to someone like a party like Sinn Féin on a wave or, you know, an unexpected wave, for the most part, you've done years of graft to get there. Mm-hmm. You have, um, you know, beaten off strong opposition at a local level, at conventions. Then you've done the work, you've done the canvassing, you've knocked on the doors and you've spent, in most cases, 10 years of your 20s, maybe into your 30s, to get to that position. And I think a lot of our politicians, unfortunately, are absolutely terrorised by cancel culture. They're afraid to be truly honest about things um, that they believe. And they either keep their head below the parapet on certain issues or they actively say things they don't believe because they're afraid of being cancelled. It's as simple as that. Yeah. I mean, I look at someone like Roderick O'Gorman, who's a minister now and is minister in the first term in the Dáil, but he ran for election, what, six, seven times before that unsuccessfully? And I mean, I know he actually genuinely believes in all the stuff I'm talking about, but I think he's a good example yeah. of what you're talking about in that in that these people, it's so hard to become a TD, especially in Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael, uh, because of all the hoops you have to jump through 
maybe run four or five times that when you get in, do you think there's just a culture of shutting up and waiting your turn and then maybe deluding yourself that when it is your turn, you'll do something slightly differently? Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of noise, like, you know, and, and, and I do, like, to be fair, you know, I grew up in a house where my dad was a TD, and I appreciate that this is, you know, the income for a lot of families, and, you know, there is, like, it's not something that people are going to just frivolously throw away on one issue, you know, and, and happily lose their seat on a, on a point of principle for the most part, if that's, you know, their family income. However, I think that like you become a TD and then immediately, you know, you, they lift you up in RDS or wherever it is that you get elected. And then the day after you have to start worrying about losing your seat. And, you know, it, there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of things coming at you. There's a lot of local issues. Like a lot of TDs, you know, still do glorified council work day after day after day, mm -hmm. just just on the basis of keeping their seat. You know, my dad was a was a TD and then he became an MEP and there was an uh, there was a uh, uh, I can't remember what the time frame was, but there was a period of time where he was a TD and an MEP, and you know then then he was just an MEP. And I remember somebody um, from Ringsend I'm, that I knew very well, and he knew Dad and I years, and she said, um, "Oh, you know, like we shouldn't have elected your dad to Europe because now, like, we never see him." And mm -hmm. I remember thinking, like, but that's you know, like, there's a lot of like. That's the nature of being a TD is that people want you to be there. People want you to be visible. People want you to be at the local meetings and, you know, throwing yourself out there on an issue that's controversial, you know, might mean six months of people being really annoyed at you. And it's it's not worth the anxiety. And, and, I, and I appreciate that. But I think that ultimately what it's meant, what it's led to is that there's a lot of group think in our politics. There's not a lot of thinking outside the box and there's a lot of fear about speaking, especially on the more contentious issues that we see now. Um, and 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 I, I'm not blaming anyone. It's unfortunate. But what happens is that only the people who are, you see a lot of people coming out and speaking on things like, for example, on the trans issue, J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling comes out and speaks to someone because she has the freedom of being rich and being and being uncancelable in that regard. So mm -hmm. it's easy. But if you're yes. a TD who's in a marginal constituency who has seven other people from the same party who would slit your throat for your job tomorrow, you're not going to do that because it might mean the end of your career in politics. And if you spent 10 or 15 years getting there, it's just not something that you're going to do. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. Jason O'Mahony, actually, uh, who's your friend and mine, former newspaper columnist, has a great saying about Irish politics that if you want to talk about national issues, the place to be is Dublin City Council, where they, they mm -hmm. vote on Palestine and NATO and the Ukraine war and all that sort of stuff. Whereas if you want to talk about potholes, the place to be is in the doll because that's what TDs do. Um, yeah. And people keep running for the wrong jobs, um, which is his take on it. But I think he's onto something. I think you're onto something there too, which is that the, 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 if you look at the UK, for example, where people have single seat constituencies, you're not looking over your shoulder at the, the other guy in the same party who might get the backing of headquarters next time if you step out of line on an embarrassing issue for the government, that our political system actually, because of the multi-seat constituencies and because there are two Fianna Fallers fighting two Fianna Gaelers in every constituency, party headquarters have massive power to incentivize people to shut up, stay quiet and vote the way they're told. Yeah, and if you're a party, you know, a member of Fianna Gael or Fianna Fáil and you're a TD, you've got you know, ultimately you've got multiple constituencies, you've got your doll constituency, but then you've got your constituency of party members, you've got the party nationally, you've got a lot of competing interests and you've got a lot of people who have huge influence over you, you know, if, if you were to speak out on an issue that they don't like. And that's mm -hmm. the reality. 
and, and, and you are elected by those people and selected by those people if they're your party members and that's fine. But unfortunately, what it leads to is exactly what you're saying, which is a lot of people who think one way but say another. And I and I can understand that, you know, if you're somebody who's run for election and your issues that you're really interested in promoting and talking about and, and influencing are X, Y and Z, and you, you're not interested in throwing yourself out there on A, B and C. It's not of interest to you. It's not something that you want to talk about and you don't want the, the hassle. Fine. but Ultimately, what we end up with is a situation where there's an, like a lot of issues now that people are just afraid to touch. I think one interesting example of that is Charlie Flanagan, um, because he is somebody who's who's actually he's been there, done that. He's he's been a minister, and with the greatest respect to Charlie, I don't think he'd agree. He's he's unlikely to be one again. When he was a minister, he was very much a toe the line person on on all of these issues. And now, without wishing to hang Charlie with his constituency, it's very interesting. He's been he's been sort of making rumblings in recent weeks on on, for example, the transgender education issue, saying that he thinks this stuff has gone too far. But he's at the end of his career. He doesn't. There's very little that his party can do to punish him. Really, he's so well established in his constituency that if he wants another go at it, you'll probably get it. And he is able, just in a little way to maybe make noises that he probably wouldn't have felt able to make if he were 30 years younger waiting for a junior ministry at the next reshuffle. Exactly. Well, that's the thing, that there's a freedom from it. But what, but that's ultimately the problem is that if there's only a freedom when you're on your way out, we lose so much like you know, debate and intellectual input from people who have the capacity to make real significant contributions to some of these issues. And out of fear, they don't. And I think there's something really depressing about that, to be honest. Uh, uh, the, huge, the huge irony is it hands all the political power in the country. It takes it out of the politicians' hands and essentially puts it into, I mean, almost all the political thinking in Ireland, I would argue, is done outside of the Oireachtas. It's done by, and regular listeners will know, that, and regular readers of what I write will know, that my big bugbear is the state-funded NGO sector. But it seems to me that these people, for example, are the people with the freedom to think and have ideas and advocate for those ideas. And they're the ones who are actually in the Oireachtas. Because I don't know, I'm not a regular visit, visitor to Leinster House, Sarah, but I'm there a couple of times a year, maybe either on business or a social uh, uh, visit. I don't know the last time I was there that I didn't see somebody from the National Women's Council or somebody from Amnesty or somebody from one of these other bodies in briefing Oireachtas committees or informally meeting politicians. They're the ones doing the thinking and the policy work because our TDs either don't have time for it, don't feel it's a safe activity for them, and feel that if they're going to have ideas, it's easy to hurt, it's better to have ideas that everyone else has, so you're staying with the the pack, so to speak. But, but that's exactly the point. I mean, you're right. It, ideally, and it'd be great if we had a system where ideas and thinking fed into the Oireachtas in that way. So to use the example of the National Women's Council, that the National Women's Council framed debates about certain things and brought them to Leinster House and like influenced the conversation about high level issues that way. The problem is that the National Women's Council has a very clear agenda of their own. They don't actually create debate or conversation or thinking about issues they tell us what to think about the issues and they don't want to hear from women who don't share those issues and that's been made really clear time and time again over the last couple of years case in point when they had this uh, rally and they only invited speakers that they liked and agreed with to speak at that conference and what are that rally and my issue with the national women's council and there's loads of ngos the same thing is that they're not they're not bringing forth ideas and like starting a debate they're telling us what to think. And that's a really big problem. Mm-hmm. And and what's 
And, you know, and, and I actually, in a way, think it's a good thing that one of the things that's happening, and, and, I, and I don't know if you agree with this, but we're roughly the same age. I'm 39 and I've been interested in politics since I was 15 or 16 years of age. But when I was 15 or 16, all the way up to, we'll say, maybe six or seven years ago, I was in the minority in my friends and um, in being politically interested in, in talking about politics. A lot of especially a lot of my female friends just had no interest. And I'm really seeing that change. And I think that people are becoming more and more engaged and more and more um like speaking out about issues that they care about because they don't see those issues or those opinions that they have actually represented in any political program that they're watching, in any public uh, radio that they're listening to. They're not seeing what they think represented and it's making them become more active. And so you could say, yes, I think that's positive. But NGOs and this, you know, supposedly talking about issues, they're not. They're just satisfying their own agenda. And that's one of one of my biggest bugbears. And I have a real thing about the National Women's Council of Ireland because I think it's, you know, it's not the National Women's Council of Ireland. I'm offended by the name as, as a woman. I think it should be the women we agree with and like Council of Ireland because it's nothing more than a talking shop for people who like and agree with each other. I am looking as we speak at a poster for there's a big march in Dublin this weekend. Um, it's a solidarity against the far right and in favour of um, you know, an anti-racism march, it's called. It's a reaction to all the protests we've been seeing in recent weeks. Paul Murphy has been leading the charge on it, but I'm looking at the poster for it here. And the poster is literally, um, if you put it on a wall, it would be 10 by 10. And it's just full of the logos of NGOs. We have the Irish Council for Civil Liberty, we have Transgender Equality Network Ireland, LGBT Ireland, National Women's Council, Belfast District Trade Union Council, Outhouse, um, Drimna for All, SIP2, Queer Space Ireland, Pave Point, Forza, the trade union. It is it is just an enormous... I mean, I don't know if there will actually be any people at this march who aren't paid by one of these organisations. And the march will almost certainly be huge. It's absolutely... Sorry, what did you say the march was for? It's the, uh, it's the, it's the um, Ireland Here for All march. The um the uh, the the anti far right march being organised by Paul Murphy. I'm not sure what the what the exact title of it is, um, but it's it's a big anti anti racism anti the far right. Everybody welcome here, um, jamboree essentially. Right. And the poster for it is just literally, uh, I would say, looking here at least 50, 60 NGOs, the vast majority of which are taxpayer funded. Like the amount of these organisations. All of them staffed up, all of them with employees, all of them with policy officers, all of them with PR officers. The power of it, all lined up on one side of the debate on immigration is one issue, but you name the issue, they're on one side of it collectively. Yeah. It is astonishing. Um, and and I, I think when we talk about why politicians don't speak out, it's not even if you even if the position you take is popular, um, you're making an enemy of a, literally a five billion euro industry that will make it its business to take you out at the next election. Yeah. And I'm not even sure like that, that like I don't really I don't really see what the point of that march is, to be honest. Like I grew up on Bath Avenue and it's kind of the border of Sandy Mountain Rings End and, and, and all of those inner city marches. Like I know personally a lot of people who attended those marches. And they're they're not all racist. You know, it's not this is so much more about so much more for them than than that. And having these marches, we're against the far right. It's just so much talking about words and phrases that don't actually mean anything anymore. Like 
what does that even mean? It's just it's just all noise and an excuse to meet up, and it doesn't actually produce any value. It doesn't start any worthy worthwhile conversations. It doesn't like address the fears that some people have. It's just yeah. all showboating, you know, virtue signaling. Show how you know woke and you know great I am by I I just. I think something's just gone horribly wrong somewhere along the line and no one's talking to each other and everyone's just showing off, basically. And it's, it's something really, I don't know, I just, the, the 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 original marches or the original protests that happened, there was just a lot of people on my Facebook because I was a counsellor and you know, it was the south inner city, it wasn't the north inner city, but a lot of people from south inner city attended those marches and i saw things coming up on my facebook and i saw lots and lots of fa- facebook statuses of of people that i know and people that i've known a long long time outlining why they were going and whatever and i don't agree with lots of the things they said some of the things i understand but like they they're not all terrible horrible right-wing racist people they're just not and nope. to to call them that and to pretend that that's what this is all about is just missing a huge opportunity to have worthwhile conversations and interactions with people who feel marginalised or not listened to by the government. And the likes of Paul Murphy will capitalise on that and rabble rouse them. And, you know, it's the same with the water charges and pretend, oh, these protesters have been infiltrated by the right, by the far right. OK, let's say they have. All marches, all protests get infiltrated by by unsavory groups, no matter what they're about. That's always been happening. But that's not to say that there's not people at those things who, you know, aren't terrible people who deserve to be talked to or listened to. Paul Murphy spent three years trying to infiltrate the water charges protests. Do you remember? Like exactly. you know, and, people. <laughs> and, and some no, of those protests locked a politician in her car. Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, it, 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 those pro- if if something similar happened with one of the protests of that are allegedly being infiltrated by the far right, there'd be an absolute there'd be a national inquiry. Like, yeah. it's it's there's always unsavory elements at every march, every protest. There's unsavory ma- elements at football matches, crowds everywhere. But that doesn't mean that every single person who attended that is a terrible person who should be told that they're racist and, you know, sent back home and whatever. Like, I just I think it's a it's a missed opportunity to have meaningful engagement with people who feel like the government has not listened to them for a long time, who feel like because they live in disadvantaged communities, that they're being unheard, unlistened to, that they're being unfairly burdened with, with disproportionate amount of, of immigration into their into their communities. Like these are all people who deserve to be listened to. And I just think the way to engage with them is by is by doing that, not by calling them names. I was. I'm going to change the subject slightly because I was talking to a very smart woman today. I won't. I won't name her because I don't think she wants to be named. But she said something to me along these lines. She said that uh, literally ten months ago, twelve months ago, we had a big national conversation in Ireland about the safety of women after the um, the horrible death of Ashley Murphy um, in um, in the Midlands, and hmm. uh, in that conversation, you know. The great and the good were on the radio telling us, you um, women don't feel safe. Men make women feel unsafe. Irish men need to look at their behavior, so on and so forth. And that woman was saying to me that now she goes to her local shopping center, which is in an area where where there have been a lot of young men moved in um, to be accommodated there. And she sees groups of them loitering around. 
um, looking at her, sometimes maybe whistling at her. She now feels unsafe as a result of that. But if she says exactly what was said on television last year about white Irish men, about the new arrivals to her community, she's denounced as a racist. And that, to me, was a very powerful statement. It's, it's also objectively true. If you went on RT and said that, you'd be sh- literally shouted down. Literally shouted oh, abso- down. Abso- absolutely. And the thing is that, like, it's not... these. There are issues at play here that people don't want to talk about, people are afraid to talk about, and certainly no politician is going to say it. But, again, just saying it's racist is not addressing people's fears. People Like, even even if you are reading too much on the internet and have been infiltrated by the far right like surely the basis of politics and politicians job is to you know engage with people in a meaningful conversation about things bring people along talk about things and all i saw when all of this kicked off like and it became you know much more to the fore of our media and everything in the last couple of months was politicians just saying let's call it out for what it is racism end of story off you go back home you've done your job you said it and uh, you pack yourself on the back for being really woke and cool and that's the end of that and you've done your job and it's like yeah but that all of these people are frightened like the people the, the, all of those people who attended those march marches and who are speaking out on facebook or are speaking out on music they're not all far right and some of them are just coming from a place of fear fear for women fear for fear for their communities so talk to them what's wrong with that i don't understand why we can't have a conversation about this that's not just you know calling people out uh, calling people racist and just silencing it because what happens is then you do run into problems because the so-called far right that you're talking about does take hold. People do become more and more racist because they feel like they're just never listened to. And if there there are women, and there are, because as you just said, you you know them, I know them, who are having these conversations and saying these things and feeling intimidated in certain spaces, why is that truth any less worthy? You know, all we hear about these days is your truth, your truth, this is your truth, this is your lived experience. Why is that lived experience any less relevant than any other lived experience, if that's what people want to talk about? Yeah, it's it's incredible. And I think a reason, before we move on, because you said something inter- interesting there I want to come back to, but I think the reason that politicians take this easy way out is because they don't have answers. I mean, the, the, the problem is that the, the immigration issue to, to talk about is a maths issue, right? There's there's only so many houses and there there's a certain number of people. And if people keep coming in, then it doesn't really matter how many more houses you build. They keep getting eaten up. So even if Paul Murphy took power in the morning and redistributed houses from the rich to the poor, there's still only a fixed number of houses in the country. Eventually, you still run out of space and you still have people knocking down the door to get in. But because politicians, for whatever reason, don't feel they can countenance the idea of turning people away, they're stuck. They don't have a problem. All they can do is shout at people that they're racist and they should shut up about it. But that's my opinion. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, you said something interesting there about victim culture, and I was struck. Uh, I don't watch RTE much, but I was struck by a clip doing the rounds uh, this week of um, Katie Hannon's new show, whatever it's called, on RTE, that, that basically questions and answers Mark II. Um, and there was a lady on it who seems to me to have come to national prominence purely and entirely and solely because she was offended by a joke at a Tommy Tiernan concert concert. And on foot of that, uh, this lady seems to have been on almost every TV show. Tommy Tiernan had to apologize. The power of victim culture in Irish society is something that fascinates me. Because I'm watching this week, there, there was a there was a vigil yesterday for a young transgender girl who, who was murdered 
for unknown reasons, we don't know why, in the UK last week. And th- there was just this outpouring of, here's, um, all, we're all automatically victims, let's have a protest, JK Rowling killed her, the UK government killed her, anyone who's ever expressed the view that biological sex is real, essentially daubed their hand in her blood. Um, it's it's gone to the point I think where 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 it's almost religious. There's a kind of like these people are martyrs for the cause element to it, um, and and I think it sends a terrible signal to kids in particular that if you want to get ahead in society, you need to be recognised as part of some kind of victimised oppressed minority. Am I miles off base there? Am I is that a far right opinion or or is it something you recognise? No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that well, my understanding of that. Poor, poor person who was murdered was the police came out and said that it was nothing to do with the transgender issue, but then subsequently came out later and changed and said it could be. Is that correct? Yes, it's. I, I think they, there was a certain like you know the police might be transphobic by not including all possible motives. So they then said yes, we of course we're looking at all possible motives. But our initial view is that was not the motive. That 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 is the position. I mean, I think any like a young person dying goes without saying it's just horrific but it's that you know everything has to be like everything has to have be about when you when you're when you're so consumed with identity politics you see everything through that prism only and you see people only as the identity that they had in the world and what that was and like it just seems that there's a level of hysteria constantly about everything and and you're you know you're only as good as your 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 victimhood basically so you know i could i'm sure come up with stories about being a woman and you know things that have happened or may or things that i've happened to me that i feel a certain way about but i just don't think that i think that long long time ago or 20 years ago when i was you or i would have been 19 or 20 you know you were a person and your identity was your identity and the things that have ha- had happened to you were kind of secondary to that and now i think we are raising a generation of people who lead with their with their victimhood on everything so you're not just john you're 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 all the thing the terrible things that have happened to you and i and i don't think that that's a healthy or useful way mm-hmm. for anybody to live their life i don't think it's something that we should encourage young people to do at all because at the end of the day like you know there, the, the things that happen to you or or times in your life where you might have been a victim are obviously extremely significant to you, but they shouldn't be, you shouldn't allow those things to overcome your entire personality and be exactly your entire identity because it's not healthy. Um, but that, unfortunately, we live in a world where that seems to be encouraged. And I mean, I have three children, they're very young and obviously touch wood, nothing um, bad ever happens to them, but like, you know, things will happen. That's life. But as a parent, what I'll be encouraging my children is to, you know, try to overcome the things that happen to you and, you know, learn from them, develop, you know, progress from them, move on from them and not when you're 40, still be identifying yourself by something that happened to you when you were 20, if and where that's possible. So like some again it comes back to people being kind of afraid because if you are a victim and you see yourself as a victim and your entire identity is your victimhood you're no nobody's allowed to to interrupt you nobody's allowed to tell you nobody's allowed to challenge your your lived experience or whatever your story is but at the end of the day like i'm not sure that it's a healthy place for anyone to be living their life based on their victimhood because 
like that's the way you see the world you see you know if I see the world as I'm a victim this things happened to me when I was younger or I'm a woman and then I see every single thing that happens to me through the prism of that victimhood or that situation or whatever it might be then I, I I live a terrible life because I live a life where I, I see myself constantly as being on the verge of attack or on the verge of, mm-hmm. of something. And I would not want that kind of life for my children. I would want my children to, you know, live their life as free as possible and, and, and identifying themselves by their victimhood all the time is, is to me is just shackling them to something, to a past, to an identity that's bound for misery. Yeah, there's this phrase that's entered the discourse now to describe people, um, which is survivor. You know, it was originally the first people I ever heard being described as survivors were Holocaust survivors. And those people actually mm-hmm. survived something really legitimately unique in human history and terrible. But I've seen people described as, for example, domestic abuse survivors. And that and when I when I hear that, I, I, I want to stress, I'm not downplaying the horrible thing that happened to them. But mm-hmm. when they're described that way, the entirety of the rest of their life becomes defined by the bad thing that happened to them. And, and yeah. that, that to me, s- strikes me as, as, as absurd. These people are not survivors, they're, they're, and they're not victims, they're victors. They won, they came through that awful situation. Um, they didn't just survive it, they came out the other side and have um, a story of triumph to tell. And, and for me, just being defined that, it's not, not, I mean, I in my life, for example, I have been robbed. I was mugged at knife point at one stage when I was quite young. I, I don't describe myself as a as an armed robbery survivor, but you know, th- th- like there there almost every woman I know has a story of some guy in a nightclub getting handsy. Um, mm. it, like there are horrible things that happen to people, and I'm not trying to downplay that. But this this culture that having something bad happen to you makes you almost put you on a higher moral plane. Um, I think is it, I'm more concerned about the message it sends to kids because I, I I draw a connection. I haven't heard anyone else draw this line, but I do draw a connection between that culture and what we're seeing amongst kids now, where there's this desperation almost to be different. You have a, an absolute explosion in mental illness, and we talked about this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago with Leisha Bruin about you know the explosion in depression amongst young girls in the U.S., the explosion in cross gender identification the explosion in the number of young girls who call themselves bisexual, for example. There's there's issues with young men with suicidality as well. But there's been, a, in this modern compassionate society of ours, we have never had a bigger uh, emphasis on mental health and we've never had more young people with mental health issues. Uh, and I don't think, I think all of this is tied up. I think there's a message being sent to young people that, um, you know, victimhood is almost, uh, if you're in trouble or you're struggling, it's an escape route. It's a it's a route out of modern out out of the obligations that are on normal people, and it make it elevates you. Um, I think I don't think it's impossible that a lot of young people look at the culture and onboard that message, and begin to explore the ways in which they themselves might be victims. And I think is one of the reasons why uh, this current generation that's coming through our universities and into workforces for, are so unable. And we see lots of examples of it, particularly in the media, to cope with disagreement, to cope with dissent, to cope with being corrected by their bosses. It's it's an incredible shift in the culture, which I think is deeply unhealthy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right in that nobody is drawing the line between one and the other. But the point is that, like, you're what you're teaching someone is that 
a bad thing or something that happened to them is now the center the center of their universe their entire identity and that you know they can their 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 whole life is now defined by this event or this thing or whatever it might be and if you like you said yourself you're you're mugged at knife point right and there are people out there who are mugged at knife point who had found that far more traumatizing and you know upsetting than you did right but mm-hmm. this is the point is that what we should be encouraging is that if you have a trauma or if you have that we encourage you know people to do the work to move beyond things as opposed to living with it and it being at the fore of your identity for the rest of your life mm-hmm. that to me is a very sort of defeatist way of of looking at trauma and we're irish like there was we're, we're only a couple of generations past people who lived with all kinds of horror and you know alcoholism in the home and all kinds of things and people grew up in real poverty and horrific circumstances and they they grew up and they moved beyond it I wonder if some of those people had grown up in a culture that told them that this was now the center of their world, the center of their identity, and that this was the thing that they were going to lead with, whether they wouldn't have been much more unhappy long term. Can can I just say, can I just say, you make a really interesting point there. You've just drawn a line in my head that I haven't drawn before in terms of what I was saying a minute ago. Because when you talk about all those horrible traumas that were inflicted on Irish people, the famine, the the war of independence, losing sons in the First World War, the, the penal laws all of that sort of stuff, which people survived. I have noticed, and I'm sure you've noticed in recent years, particularly amongst the young, those things are being talked about almost incessantly now in a way that they weren't 20 years ago. I don't think I've been on the the internet a day in the last year that I haven't heard somebody mention the Brits and the famine. There's this kind of, it's almost been adopted as a sense of, of national victimhood, which we can draw onto ourselves. Rather than mm-hmm. celebrating what's actually happened in the country in the hundred years or so since we became independent, it's 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 this laser focus on the grievances of the past, and I think that's connected with the whole victim culture. And there's there's merit in there's merit in drawing that cloak around yourself and saying, "I come, I am of an oppressed people." You know, I'm like the American Indians. We were colonized too. Sometimes you see people emphasizing in terms of. People going to people being sent to the to the Caribbean they go on indentured servitude lines that the Irish were slaves to. There's been a huge sort of sense of drawing that not 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 that none of it's true, but in drawing it back up and making it the centre of the national story again, which I yeah. think is sort of fascinating. And the uh, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, and all the the different ways that Irish people were treated badly in the world. Whereas when I was growing up. My overarching impression of Ireland abroad was that everybody loved us. Everybody thought we were great. And I didn't really think about it too much. I mean, mm. I'm not talking about I'm not talking about Ireland and England, but you know, in, in the world. I just didn't I never felt a victimhood like that in any way. I never thought about it too much, to be honest. And I just think that like at the end of the day, if you put it as simply as you can put it as simply as this. We're supposed to be in the most progressive, most um, free to be you and me, most happy, most positive era in the, in our country's history ever. And yet we have these explosions of mental health problems, or whatever. So so draw the line from one to the other. What's gone wrong? If we're in if if talking about it and talking about your story and your truth and your victimhood and telling the world about it and screaming about, you know, everything that happened and being honest and open is so great. Why is it not helping? Mm -hmm. 
why aren't we happier? Why aren't young people happier? If young people can now talk about exactly what they want, be who they want, say what they want, do what they want, why aren't they not joyous? Why, why aren't depression rates and suicide rates plummeting through the floor? It's because it's it, it it's more complicated than that, and I don't think it's it's helping to make people feel like they're put upon all the time. Simple. Yeah, I, I am very interested in suicide rates, for example, amongst young men because they are outrageously high. Um, yeah, seem to be getting worse. Um, there are people who would say, you know, there's the the Andrew Tates of the world, who I don't think are a great example, who would say it's about an attack on masculinity and young men should be told to go and rip deer apart with their bare hands and, you know, collect a woman or whatever, whatever nonsense they come up with. But I do think while that is an exaggerated, blown off the top of reality version of that story, I do think there has been this over the last, over, over, literally over the 20 years of my adult lifetime, I'm 38, I was 18, so 20 years, there has been this massive shift in sort of the world in which young men live, um, where they are now constantly under threat of being told that there's something wrong with them, that their masculinity is toxic, that they are not proper allies, that, you know, they have to behave in a certain way, conduct themselves in a certain way, that they have to be emotional and touch with their feminine side. And I think there is a breed of man for whom all of this is very, very difficult. I'm not saying it's difficult to, to you know, be well-behaved around women. That's not what I'm saying. Mm. But the, 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 the expectations for what the modern man should be, um, I think a lot of young men find it very difficult, especially when they live in a world simultaneously where with two clicks of their mouse, they can see the most hardcore degrading pornography depicting women as little more than objects. And so they're expected to reconcile these two sides of themselves um, in a world which treats them um, as problematic, where they're told that they're the problem and, and despite all their best efforts, they're still the number one threat to, to, to uh, the turns women into victims. So yeah, I think there's there's huge issues in the modern culture in terms of what we're doing both to young women and to young men. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, I have two two sons and a daughter and like I I have to say I'm more worried about the world for my sons than for my daughter. I think you know, I mean, you, you mentioned Andrew Tate. Like Andrew Tate's just a kind of a a parody of you know, Andrew Tate is what people have been saying for five years that Jordan Peterson is incorrectly, yeah. you know, he is, he is a, a caricature of nonsense and, you know, he shouldn't even, you shouldn't even be talking about him because he's just a lunatic who like, you know, doesn't deserve the time. But, you know, Jordan Peterson is great. Like, like, again, I, I'm a big fan of Jordan Peterson. I don't agree with everything he says, but I think that he, he said he talks about things or he he did talk about things that no one else was a few years ago. I think he's a he's a, a landing space for a lot of men who are lost who, you know, and, and telling them to take accountability of their lives. And I think there's nothing, you know, particularly wrong with anything that he says in that regard. And I think that he's done. He's been very helpful for a lot of, you know, men. And um, so. I think more power to him. As I said, I don't agree with everything he said, but I don't agree with everything I said two weeks ago. So, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not, a, it's like, you know, there's this whole thing now where I saw, I was talking about this to somebody a couple of weeks ago and I was saying, oh, I really like Jordan Peterson, but I resent the fact that it's like, you know, now when you say you like something, it's like you have to align yourself 100% with every single thing they said, ever did, you know, oh, well, he said this in one of his books. Do you agree with that? It's like, well, 
I don't agree with my mother on everything. I don't agree with myself. So why would I, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? But I, I think Jordan Peterson has made some really good points about what it's like or what, you know, what it feels like to be a young man in this changed society that we're in and like good for him. Um, but I think that like it's, there's a the, the new world that we're living in and the way things are changing is scary um for for young people for sure but yeah there's definitely a space there for men and as you say suicide rates and 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 porn and who you are and who you're supposed to be and consent and all of these kind of conversations that men you know are are being told that they're wrong all the time and 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 not a lot of I think not a lot of compassion for what it's like to be a 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 year old guy figuring out who you are, who you want to be. And mm-hmm. in the same way as there is for 17, 18, 19, 20 year old girls. Um, and like, hopefully that'll come back around and, you know, we're, we're working through some society and things will get better. But at the moment, when I look at my two sons and my daughter, the one, the ones I worry about where they'll how they'll move in the world and how they'll figure things out as they go on is the boys more than the girl yeah I think it's all manifesting though as just this raw anger I remember after the abortion referendum 2018 which I was sadly from my perspective I don't regret it but like it was a very tough tough uh, thing to be involved in but I remember after that being over I remember just sitting down and writing out that what struck me about it was the explosions in delirium and delight that we saw in what I still consider to be utterly distasteful scenes in Dublin Castle when that referendum was passed. Uh, And you had people cheering and you had crying and you had, this is it, all our problems are solved now, this is a compassionate society. That within two weeks, the anger and rage that they felt at old Catholic Ireland would be back. Because in reality, these people had, in my view, become addicted to a sense of being oppressed. That yeah. there was there was this idea that um, being oppressed was what made them virtuous, that they were the victims and that they were kicking back and that by getting rid of the Eighth Amendment in that instance or by changing the marriage laws a couple of years before that or by, well, I don't know, whatever it will be next, introducing euthanasia, the transgender thing, whatever it is, that they are tearing back and fighting back against their oppressors. But the problem is, when that is your mindset, then no victory is ever enough. All you can do is destroy. You can't really build anything new. The the the, the delirium they felt, the, t- the tears of joy were because old monstrous right-wing dinosaurs like myself and David Quinn and some archbishop somewhere had been defeated. Um, it wasn't actual happiness or a sense of peace that that this society was experiencing. It was a momentary catharsis before the next fight against the evil forces of the past. And I think that that constant cycle that we go through in this country is a big reason for all of our problems. We, we're not a happier country. We're just, we're a very angry country. There's so much rage in, in, in society, or at least in that part of society, which takes part customarily in political discourse. Um, and I, I don't know where it ends. I'll tell you where it might end is if Bertie comes back. That's the worst. <laughs> that is the worst. I can I just say uh, that is the worst transition I've ever done on this podcast. But um, I'm going to go with it. I'm going to go with it because I say I wrote a piece last week, Sarah, about Bertie coming back. In I said a lot of things in, but one of the things I said was that this country was a much happier country when he was Taoiseach. Even when he left, even when the economic clouds were on the horizon, there was economic pain, but I think the general sense of contentment in the country was much higher. And I think there are a lot of people who still have fond memories of him. Do you think he could um, he could make a meaningful comeback, perhaps in two years, for the Oris? Uh, um, 
I love the way you're just putting it, <laughs> putting it all down to Bertie. Things are better. It was all Bertie. Um, yeah, well, he can send me cash for that. It was, it was, it was yeah. good an advert he's going to have in the mainstream media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, two things. I don't, I don't really see Bertie running for president um, for a variety of reasons. Um, funnily enough, the presidential election is one of the only campaigns I've never been involved in in any way. Um, not canvas nothing um since I, well since I was a kid actually I think I canvassed for Brian Lenehan senior when I was a child but um but it's a notoriously horrible personal uh, campaign um where all of your um dark deepest darkest secrets or whatever else are put out into the public light and I don't think that I don't think Bertie would be uh, down for that, but I think he's enjoying the speculation about it. And, of course uh, he is. But but I but what I do think about Bertie that's interesting, just from a party, and you said you mentioned earlier on that I'm, you know, a former Fianna Fáil, a, a, whatever I am, I'm not a member, I'm not active in Fianna Fáil anymore. But but I do, you know, I come from a family that's long long time steeped in Fianna Fáil, and I do have a, a, a um, an interest in the party, you know, doing well per se, and um, not dying off. And I think that the party has done pretty poorly um, from a from a polling point of view for quite a long time. And more importantly than that, because I think that the membership of Fianna Fáil is the, is the lifeblood of it. I've never in my adult or in my whole life seen such disenfranchisement in the members. Um, they're so disillusioned. They're very unhappy. And, you know, I think that there's a really, really, Micheál Martin has a really, really big problem with the membership. And so I think that Bertie coming back into the party is definitely reinvigorating some of those members, making them feel like, you know, a bit more hopeful, giving a bit of energy, getting a, giving a bit of buzz to the party. So I think from that point of view, it's a good thing. But I don't see him running, you know, for any for the Aurus or anything like that. But one of the things that I found really funny is, you know, like ultimately we're anoraks, you know, we're interested in politics, we're observers, we're we're commentators on politics. But I saw uh, I think it was or I listened to the radio and they uh they did a a couple a vox pop of interviewing people on the street in Bertie's old constituency about, you know, what they thought about him coming back to politics. And a number of them said like, oh, you know, he was really funny in the doll and I can't wait to see him. And I was really struck by the fact that it seemed like a lot of people just thought he was a TD again. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, we think that people are more engaged with this kind of thing than they are. Like they're not paying as much attention as you think. And they seemed like the 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 general consensus was that, you know, there was a lot of love there for Bertie and a lot of the people who were interviewed had a lot of time for him and they remembered him fondly. And so, you know, I think he's he's energy and he's lifeblood and he's um, also experienced in a lot of particular areas of politics that are extremely useful. So, you know, I think he brings a lot to the table, but do I think he's going to run for the oars and be president? No, I don't. We, we actually um, did a, we, we did a Vox Pop this week. I sent Ben Scallon out to talk to people on the streets of Dublin and just for the fun of it, ask them if they'd support Bertie for president. But one of the things that struck me about it, I mean, the answers were basically 50-50. Uh, and of course, that might all change in a campaign. Who knows? But the but but the funniest, not funniest, but the most interesting response came from a, a lady in I say her late forties, early fifties, something like that. And she was a dub, a uh, good solid dub. And would she vote for Bertie? Absolutely. 
She even had some brown envelopes for him if he wanted them. She was joking. But like, she, even despite that, even despite all that, she would vote for Bertie. And then Ben said to her, um, you know, and what about the party generally? Oh, she wouldn't vote for Fianna Fáil. No, Fianna Fáil have lost it. She would vote for Sinn Féin at the next election. Mary Lou is the woman for her, but she'd vote for Bertie. And I think that that woman probably told the story of Irish politics over the last six, seven years in one interview better than any opinion poll could. It is an awful lot of people who saw Bertie as being fundamentally on their side, who no longer think that about Fianna Fáil, but do feel that way about Mary Lou Macdonald and Sinn Féin. Whether they're right or wrong is a different discussion. But but, but I, I thought that was fascinating that he, uh, entirely separate from the party, had an appeal to that woman that none of the current crowd in, in Leinster House have. And of course, that's not surprising because Micheál Martin has basically said he doesn't want those votes. He has been searching the votes of, uh, ironically, people like you, suburban w- married women who have liberal education in their 30s. He's been doing that for 15 years and he's been losing a percentage point every year as far as I can see. Yeah, I mean, there's entire political consultancies in America dedicated solely to the issue of, you know, promoting your candidate's uh, appeal in terms of whether people would want to go for a drink with him. Mm -hmm. And I think that Bertie is the epitome of that in Ireland. Like, uh, even people who don't like Bertie, uh, they go for a drink with him. You know, like, there's a kind of a, there's a, there's a, he has that appeal. He has that feeling of, like, you know, of a personality that you could sit down and have a bit of crack with. And I don't think a lot of the current uh, politicians that we have in leadership position have that appeal. He also has something that very few Irish politicians have, which is stature. You know, I I think of, uh, in my lifetime, Irish politicians who had stature, probably Hawhey or Hearn, maybe you could argue Gareth Fitzgerald. That's it. I mean, you know, there's nobody, there's no towering figure in Irish society anymore, probably because we don't have a political party that has 40% of the voter. 45% 45% of the vote. But, but you know, you know, we, we the leaders of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, neither of them are towering figures. I mean, they're sharing the Taoiseach job because there's neither of them are so obviously dominant in, in, in politics as to have a right to have it for five years. Um, Bertie is somebody with stature. Um, and I think that really matters. He, he, he even, even with all his issues, and I'm not saying I would vote for him, um, but there are an awful lot of people out there who I think um, just have a feeling that the country is adrift and maybe and maybe there's a, a bit of nostalgia when it comes to Bertie. But anyway, we will have the chance to discuss that and many other issues over the weeks to come. Um, for now, Sarah, it's been it's been great uh, for, I hope, for our listeners to get to know you, hear a few of your thoughts. Um, in, it's been a while since we've had a guest on this show. We'd probably have one in the next week or two as well. Um, but for now, folks, as ever, thank you so much to listen, for listening. I want to say on a personal level that I am so very grateful to David Quinn for um, everything he did to help get this on, on the road. And I'm so sorry that he's had to go. But I'm also happy for him um, in his in his new job with the Sunday Independent, where he will continue to reach a massive audience with um, the very intelligent stuff that he writes on a weekly basis, which you should all read. But anyway, thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing this. Thank you for telling your family and friends about us. But for now, as ever. That was the week that really was.